well, glad to be back. I really, not, not being here last week, I don't know if you realize this, but I do enjoy being with all of you in worship on Sunday. I really look forward to this each week. Um, and we're, so we had a, a break in the series that we're in, and I'm thankful to Ron for bringing the message last week, and I called him on Saturday afternoon, realizing the predicament we were in, and he said, I think I can, I think I have something in the file, and he did a great job. Really appreciative of Ron uh, for doing that and the word he brought. It was very good. But we're, we're in a sermon series. We started a series two weeks ago called Warmly Welcomed, where we're talking about creating a better belonging among God's people. And, and what we, where we started was in Acts 15, talking about barriers that the Gentiles faced as they came to coming to faith in the Lord and becoming really part of the church, ultimately. And then what we said we're going to do is go backwards, start at the beginning of Acts, and look at a couple moments where there were barriers to kind of being the full community of Christ. And if we go back all the way to Acts 2, which is our scripture reading this morning, we heard it uh, spoken about here, and we'll read it in a moment, so I invite you to find it. What we see is we're actually not dealing with a barrier of the Gentiles coming in at first. We're, be- we're dealing with uh, essentially what Jesus talked about when he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, that is people of the same culture and the same cultural outlook, that we're going to be able to reach those people for Christ first. And what you have is a Jewish and Jewish conversation connecting the dots of Christ first and foremost. And so we're going to talk about that level of conversation and where we can have perhaps input with people who have similar cultural context that we do but haven't connected the dots of Christ this morning. Um, And what I want to point out and what we could say is our point for every week going forward is that disciples of Jesus look for those people who are far from God and point them to Jesus. That's our job as disciples of Christ, very simply. We're people who look for those who are far from God, point them to Jesus. And ultimately, our our goal is to make a hospitable invitation to life in Christ, both, of course, by the example of who we are in Christ, but also with words, as it turns out. And so let's look at Acts 2, 1 through 13, um, and read about the day of Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Pentecost is when they had gathered. It doesn't specifically say much more than that they gathered in a place in Jerusalem. We presume within proximity to the temple. That would make sense. 
uh, Pentecost, that's the Greek name for a typical Jewish festival. Pentecost meaning 50th. Um, it's the festival of weeks or the celebrating the wheat harvest or the festival of the first fruits. It's one of three pilgrimages that uh, Jews took to uh, Jerusalem each year. The other two being Passover and the festival of booths or Sukkot. Um, and so it's seven weeks after Passover, 50 days after Passover, they're celebrating this festival of the first fruits together. And when we hear the, the events of Pentecost, this seems so otherworldly to us that the Holy Spirit took and he made it possible for, as we saw, earthly languages to be spoken by people who hadn't taken time to study those essentially, and then be able to speak those languages to other people so that it was understandable, the message was understandable of the gospel. And we can look at that and, and read it and think, this is something that seems utterly unrepeatable. It's never going to happen again. And indeed, parts of it aren't ever going to happen again. There are one time, one time in history. That's it. The, the very specific nature of that event was a one-time event in, in the, the most specific sense that you have the apostles, the original apostles, reaching a, what we might call a not-quite-unreached people group uh, with the message of Jesus Christ probably not going to happen that exact way again. But all over the world, the Holy Spirit works to reach unreached people groups in their own language all the time. Missionaries are going out constantly doing that, and the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do that. Right now, even, the Holy Spirit is working in our own language so that we can understand and bring understanding to the Scripture. In fact, I hope if you follow Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, I hope, is at work in your life. Amen? That's what's supposed to happen. So the Holy Spirit is doing things in your life. The Holy Spirit is preparing and changing hearts even right now of people we know that don't yet know Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work right now. The Holy Spirit is in the business of transforming those who have said yes to Jesus Christ to become holy as God is holy. So the Holy Spirit is active. Much of what's going on here is actually quite repeatable and should be repeated and going on that the message of the good news is translated to people who don't know the good news or haven't connected the dots. It's happening all over. It should be happening in our part of the world as much as any other. So what you have is the apostles who are Jews, who, are, who said yes to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now they're sharing that message with other people who are also Jews and saying, this is the one we were waiting for. He's the Savior. And at the end of all that, when Peter preaches, and you should read that this afternoon, it's a remarkable uh, sermon that he gives, then 3,000 are baptized. They said, well, what should we do, Peter? And he says, be baptized. Join this thing. Say yes to Jesus and join the club. The apostles connected the dots for God's covenant people who hadn't yet realized the Messiah had come. That's what he was doing. The, the covenant has been fulfilled. The expectation finally come true. Even though there was a language barrier, there wasn't really actually a culture barrier in a sense, a religious barrier for them. They could, once they had that language part covered, they could speak some of the similar ritual and cultural language to make them understand, this is what we were waiting for. Let's connect the dots for you. And they responded. Where we can translate that, I think, to our world is we live in what we could call a Christian-ish culture. We live in a culture that still has some uh, remnant and resemblance to sort of biblical allusions, 
Some people know the story of Christ in part. Certainly, as you go younger in the demographics, there's a lot more kids who don't know anything about Jesus, even though they've wholly rejected Christianity. They have no idea what they've rejected because they, they couldn't tell you the story. But we still, by and large, live in a culture where a lot of people kind of know the basics of the story and even could tell you something about Jesus. Something about Jesus and something about the Bible, but they haven't connected the dots on what the real meaning is. They haven't made that connection. It's not foundational to their worldview. Religion is just an add-on to a life that could fully function without God, but they kind of are still using the language that we use and some of the ideas that we use and those sorts of things. And, it, and I want to talk about how that plays out, and it's going to be a little bit heady, but I think at the same time, it's going to be quite relatable as we talk about it. Because uh, what uh, I'll make a little um, explanation of what happened. This was actually a sermon I reworked this week that I was going to preach last week. Of course, I wasn't here. So small group questions had already come out relating to this. And I know some groups already went through this and, and talked through this thing called moralistic therapeutics, deism. Big fancy term. You don't need to worry about it much anymore from here. We'll talk about the points of it in a moment. Um, and some groups maybe took the questions that had to do with Ron's sermon. But I know that some of the groups that, that already worked through this were really intrigued and found this very relatable. Um, the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, MTD we'll call it from now on. If you talk to sort of man on the street kind of interviews, you're never going to find somebody that says, oh yeah, that's my religion. But what you're going to find is that these sort of six points I'll outline, we all have neighbors, friends, coworkers, classmates who hold to these ideas about God and about faith and that sort of thing, which are, they look kind of like they're uh, Christian-ish, but they're not quite there, but they hold to them and they, they comprise people's worldview around us and there's a disconnect there. And so uh, the, the concept, moralistic therapeutic deism, it comes from a couple of people named Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. It's been, it's a couple decades old as the idea. I'm taking these from uh, George Barna's work at Arizona Christian University, and, and um, the small group question from last week had the, the link. I'll have to send it this week if you want it. But, but here are some of the points, and we'll talk through them as we go. So you will run into a lot of people around in our culture who have a belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. This is what's deism. That's where you get that in the MTD language. So the claim of deism, it's an old idea. Uh, centuries-old idea, uh, most uh, famously put forth as God is the divine clockmaker who created this clock that is the world and the universe, put all the gears in motion, so perfectly tuned, wound it up, and then lets it go, and then steps back and never has to do anything with it. Right? This is what comes out of the Enlightenment, if you're familiar with that, and gets worked over and over and over that what we have is an impersonal creator God who put things together and doesn't need to do anything because nature will take its course and it'll work and that's perfectly fine and that's how it goes. And what I would suggest is you can probably think through an awful lot of people in your life who say, I believe in God, that's good enough, and this is kind of the God they have in mind, actually. A God who's quite distant. One of the problems among many is that it actually, even though the concept of this is that uh, God would have put in our heart morality and those kinds of things are somewhere in us. Um, ultimately, the Bible's useless in this because why would an impersonal God give us something like that? Um, so there's no real structure other than nature to assess the world. And so it actually ends up setting me up as an authority, as my own authority in the world. Um, and so 
among the many problems. That's one of the major problems. And we see that following through in the rest of these ideas. A second sort of concept in this MTD idea is that people are supposed to be good to each other. And I'll, I'll pair it with another line, which is the universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. Now think about this. You probably know people who are operating this way as their operative worldview as well. God exists. God doesn't really need to be a part of my life. People are supposed to be good to each other. If you were to press and say why, you know, uh, and then you'd, you'd probably have an interesting conversation that might not go very far. You know, people shouldn't murder. Okay, well, is it just because it's illegal or because it's actually objectively wrong? Uh, people shouldn't steal. Well, okay, is it just because it's illegal or why? Or like, what's the basis for that? But, but the claim is made that people should just be nice to each other, be kind. We've talked about that before. And that the purpose of life is being happy. And quite honestly, turn on any show that's been created, TV show, movie that's been created with a parent and a child in the last 20 years. And what does every parent in every show want for their kids? I just want you to be happy. That sets the bar pretty low, I think. Um, and, and pretty fleeting, if that's what we want. And that's the entire goal. And by the way, numbers two and three are contradictory, but plenty of people hold these together, that we should be good to each other, but the universal law of life is to be happy and, and just feel good about yourself. Well, if I feel good by cutting others down, that goes against the first one. Anyways, you get the idea. They don't make sense together, but ultimately it still sets us up as an authority. We're, we're the primary authority. What I want to do is what I want to do, and that is how I'm going to run my life. Uh, we can add to this that there are, among this sort of soup of beliefs that people have, there's the belief that there are no more absolute moral truths. Um, again, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, uh, other than to say this is pretty easy to defeat if you're ever talking to someone about that. You can have your truth, all of mine. Self-defeating statement is what it is, right? If you can have your truth and all of mine, that statement's true, so it defeats the statement. There are plenty of those statements that people make. But, but the way that this plays out in our culture, and again, as I bring these up, they're heady, but think of people that you know that hold these, and you're going you're gonna to walk pretty far with that and find a lot of people on your list. Um, the way that this plays out is often the idea of follow your heart. And of course, Jer as Jeremiah points out, the heart is deceitful above all else. We know this. Um, a great example of, of this kind of thing came across uh, in my news feed this week, and I thought that the Guardian had the best headline. So can we throw that up there, Mark? It says, uh, stranded dog saved from rising tide after rescuers attached sausage to drone. So apparently the dog got caught in the mud flats. And probably how it got caught there is it was following its heart, right? There's something out there to sniff. And then it followed its heart back. The heart is deceitful above all else. This is what happens to us in life, too. We just get in constant trouble. That's what our operative way of living is. So keep going. We can put the last two together as well and think of people that we know who maybe hold this. Um, and that is that God allows good people into heaven and that God places very limited commands on people. Um, and I bring some of these up too because it's important not just that we may know people like this, but some of these beliefs have been edging their way into the church pretty decisively, especially number five, that God allows good people into heaven. Um, this is chicken soup for the soul faith, is what this is. It, it sounds good, it sounds hearty, but it's a faith that can't deal with adversity. 
It's a faith that's going to fall flat when something actually happens, and it gives us an unrealistic assessment of ourselves in the world. And I'll, I'll give you just a simple example of how we can, we can think we're, we're good and we're moral and we're right and all of those kinds of things, but I can even think to myself of how we put ourselves first with about three or four different examples from this week just on the road. Um, making a right turn. Uh, somebody's making a right turn. I'm driving down the road. Nobody's behind me. And what does a person do? They pull in front of you to try and just get in front of you, make you slow down, even though they could have waited 10 seconds. Somebody's trying to get to the left lane from the right lane. You're right there. Instead of going behind you where there's plenty of room, they speed up and cut you off, threatening you, and then going over to the right lane. Well, they put themselves first, right? And we see this all over the place. Sometimes we ourselves are guilty of it, right? Now, if you compare that to people who would do worse things on the road, I'm pretty good. But then there are people who are better drivers than me. And you can see you can do this in all spheres of life. It gives us a poor assessment of ourselves and the world around us. We underestimate the power of sin, and we underestimate how much that has actually gotten into our lives. And finally, of course, like I said, God places very limited demands on people. Jesus says, take the cross and follow me. Uh, that means that we as followers of Christ certainly have pretty high demands on us. Why does this matter? Though? Why bring up all of this and think about people that we have in our lives who we live in the same cultural context where if this is sort of a Christian-ish, you can see how it, it kind of feels good and it looks almost right. And a lot of people buy into it. Why bring this up? Well, let me give an example that I think will, will highlight this. In my first year of college, I was up in Alberta for a year and I was there with uh, Garrett and Jordan Hope and then Pastor Jody when she was here. She was one of our classmates too. And Towards the early spring, we all took off and went across Canada to different covenant churches across Canada in small teams for a week and did a thing called Ministry Week where we got to serve and, and work in these different communities. I ended up in probably one of the more gorgeous places, which is uh, Kootenai Lake area in British Columbia in the mountains. Absolutely gorgeous area. Just utterly gorgeous. And um, one of the days we actually got paired up just doing some like litter cleanup in some wetlands and things like that. But towards the end of the day, we got to go trudging into the water of the wetlands and modify beaver dams, which I had never done. I've never done since. And it was a lot of fun, super cold water. But um, the, you know, the beavers build their dams and it's supposed to raise the water level so it protects their lodge and keeps them safe. But, and it's great for other animals in the wetland area but for humans that live around there it can cause extra flooding and other things that go on and so sometimes in these places what they do is they try and strike a compromise with the beavers and so they kind of take apart parts of the beaver dam to allow a little more water but still allow the beavers to be protected by somewhat risen water levels so that it controls the water better and so what they said to us is if you just take the beaver dam apart the beaver's just going to rebuild it but if you reach underneath and just pull a little bit out from underneath and allow some holes so it keeps the dam intact but allows water to run a little bit more underneath, it still keeps the water level enough to protect the beavers, but it's going to allow more water to seep through and then it controls it. And if you do that to a couple different dams, it'll help. There are more sophisticated ways to do this now than just pulling it out. You can use tubes and all kinds of things. But that's what we got to do that day. I bring that up because that's what MTD actually is as a worldview. 
it looks like the dam is intact, holding everything together, but it's got a ton of holes in it, allowing everything to go through and not work as it should. But it looks right. You look protected. You look like you're good enough. You feel good about yourself, of course, again, until adversity strikes. But it lacks integrity in the sense of it's not complete. Peter is the one who preaches on Pentecost. If you look at 1 Peter 17, or 1, 17 through 21, it'll come up on the screen. Peter writes, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. And what happens with this disconnect that happens as, as we buy into the ideas of moralistic therapeutic deism and these sort of watered-down, hole-in-the-dam kind of Christian-ish looking uh, faith is that our hope is in something else, and we don't realize it. So the surveys show that kind of the crowd under 50 or so as a general rule, uh, again, coming from the same source, the Barna group, or uh, Barna at Arizona Christian, excuse me, he points out that surveys show that in that under 50 crowd of a general population, 91% of people do not believe that people are sinful and need salvation through Jesus Christ. We're all probably good enough. 88% of people trust sources other than the Bible for moral guidance. 76% of people contend that good people get to heaven through good behavior. And 71% of people do not believe that the Bible is true and reliable communication from God. What it boils down to, as uh, church planter Dietrich Schindler has said, is we live in an age in which most people believe that life can be lived well without God. In neglecting him, they insert the conviction that human agency is enough for humans to flourish. All we need is ourselves and our efforts. If we connect the dots then between what we're saying here and where we started with Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost, what was happening on the day of Pentecost were diaspora or diaspora, diaspora Jews, however you want to say it, people who, Jewish people who were spread throughout the ancient world. We see all these different people, they had different languages they were speaking locally. But as we said at the beginning, they have the same rituals. They obviously take the faith seriously if they've made the trip all the way to Jerusalem for the festival of weeks. They understand the religion and what they were waiting for. They just came from a different location with different dialects. Otherwise, they have everything else, and they haven't yet said yes to Jesus. So the disciples simply needed to be empowered to share that news with people who kind of had the same lingo, if you will. Same thing goes for us. We live in a Christian-ish culture where there are still a lot of people who speak a similar language to us, but maybe define the word differently maybe understand the world a little bit differently, but they're not actually so far apart that we're speaking a completely foreign language. But they just haven't connected the dots to the importance of Jesus Christ in all of this and why that matters. That's how we can make the connection. And so I want to give you two pieces of encouragement to be hospitable to the work of the Holy Spirit out and about, and some of it may even start here, but out and about, 
as we look for those ways to connect with people who speak a similar dialect, if you will, but just haven't connected the dots to Christ. The first thing I want to point out is that we actually should use to our advantage emotional connections with people who have this similar cultural context as us. And uh, Tim Keller states, and I agree with him, he says, Christianity needs to make emotional sense before it can make rational sense. That is, it makes rational sense. It does. But I'll read it again. Christianity needs to make emotional sense before it can make rational sense. And I say that knowing that there are a lot of people who have said yes to Jesus Christ in their lives who have done it on purely emotional grounds. And if, if you're in that camp and you've made it on purely emotional grounds, you need some depth underneath that. Otherwise, we're like the seed that was cast in the rocks in Jesus' parable that's going to grow real fast but then shrivel because it doesn't have anything. And I say this also because uh, there are many of us, and this is where we, we need to land on the other side, and we have probably are around a lot of these people where we have a completely intellectual faith in Christ, but we actually haven't made the, the heart choice in a sense. And we're probably around a lot of people who we could intellectually demonstrate that Christianity makes a ton of sense, but emotionally, they're not going to make that decision until they have emotionally like grabbed on to it in some way. We don't want to make the, the decision based on emotion strictly, but the reason to bring this up is that MTB, this, this, these beliefs that we just talked about, are emotionally satisfying. It's really emotionally satisfying to put yourself first. It's really emotionally satisfying to think that you can be good enough and moral and all these kinds of things and to, to work through that. It seems persuasive because it's emotionally satisfying, but it has, like we said, no power to deal with the deepest issues in life. And that's something important to hold on to. Right? If the goal is to be happy uh, in life, we don't need God because of that. Well, then what happens when there's a sudden death or when divorce happens or when all these tragedies happen? All of a sudden, that worldview crumbles. And so what we can do is we can actually connect who struggles with people and connect the dots who struggle with others. I was listening to a, a really fine interview with Rick Warren recently, and it was just marvelous. I could re-listen to it many times over. It was just so good. He's, after four decades, stepping away from the current role he has at, at um, Saddleback. But he talks about in this, he talks about the parable of the soils that Jesus uh, uses where the sower goes out and is casting the seed, you know, on the, the rocky path, and, or the hard path, the rocky soil, the thorny ground, and then the well-tilled soil. And he says, you know what's interesting is if you do the math that Jesus puts out there, only 25% of people that we run into then, if that's true, are actually ready to say yes to the good news of Jesus Christ. Only 25%. That's still a big number, by the way, if you calculate that out. But only 25% are at any given time ready, if, if we kind of take the math at face value, the way Jesus presents it. But what's interesting is what, what he pointed out, and I agree with him, he said, but we, if we're reading the parable right, we don't have the power to till the soil. The Holy Spirit tills the soil. And how does the Holy Spirit till the soil, he points out? Through storms. Typically, it's through turbulent, stormy moments in people's life that the Holy Spirit tills the soil. And I would say, from experience, that's true. And when we connect on that level with people, we have an interesting pathway in to share the good news of Christ. 
when we connect that way with people. People already think Christians are perfect or that they hide their issues. And in many cases, functionally, people without realizing it are deists. Quite a lot of the people that we run into, they believe in God, but he has no relevance to their day-to-day life. He might as well be a million miles away. God exists. He's not needed for many people. But we can then ask the question, how has God walked with me and made me more like Christ in difficult times? And when we can start to answer that question, when we get those chances to have conversations with people of any depth where people are struggling, that we know, we all of a sudden can have churches struggle to struggle. And people will listen. Connect emotionally. And I'll just point this out too, as as obviously this is an evangelistic uh, message in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But one thing I've also discovered is as we connect with people, when you get the when the Holy Spirit opens the door to have a chance to actually talk with any depth like that, sometimes that door is open, sometimes it's not. We don't want to just talk about God generally. We want to talk about Jesus specifically. Give an example in my own life. A couple years ago, I was talking to a neighbor, um, and we were we were able to get into a deeper conversation about Christ. And as we're talking, I didn't know where this neighbor stood. I I, I knew where he kind of the, his sort of church attendance, but I didn't know actually what that meant. And so we talked further, and it was obviously clear that he was bought in full on believer in Christ. And it was fun, but we wouldn't have gotten to that conversation or that depth of the conversation, even know that information, if we just talked about God generally. We talked about Jesus specifically. And nobody converts to God generally. They convert to Jesus specifically. That's what we're talking about here. And I I also recognize that since this is an evangelism sermon, uh, the classic thing that we sometimes think of is I don't know any non-Christians to share with, but I'm just going to make the contention that every single one of us knows somebody who's Christian is. Every single one of us is connected in some way, shape, or form with somebody who believes some of that, what I just said on the page, even though if you ask them, do you believe in moralist or therapeutic deism, they'd look at you confused, like, what in the world are you talking about? We all know people who are Christianists. We all know people who are holding to this kind of worldview as their operative worldview, but they've never actually gone, in many cases, to the depths of thinking about how they got there. And we can connect with those people. But you never know until you take an interest in that conversation. The other thing I want to say is what you would expect, that if we're going to connect with people who are in that Christianish category, uh, we should pray. Uh, yeah, okay, pastor, you need to say that. Now move on to the closing prayer. But here's the thing. Uh, friend of the congregation, Lars Dunberg, we've done a book study of his, and we, we've had him speak. It's been a long time, actually, since we've had him speak. Um, but Lars was in charge of many big organizations in his lifetime and raised millions of dollars as a Uh, head of or development person for those uh, organizations and I got to sit in on an in-service that Lars did with a a camp I I sat on the board of he came in and talked about how to do fundraising well and I I remember he gave this advice it was about fundraising but it can be applied anywhere it can be applied to your work it can be applied anywhere where he said okay if you're going in and you're talking to a donor take two people and one, one of you is talking the other person is praying that was really useful information to me, not about raising money, but during the annual meeting last week, when somebody was talking, I was praying. 
when I sit down with somebody, I try and implement this. I sometimes forget, but I try and implement this. When I'm in a meeting with somebody, if they're talking, I'm praying. I can still listen and pay attention when they do that. When I've been in meetings for kids and things like that, when somebody's talking, I'm praying. And if we pray intentionally when we're in the midst of those conversations with others, we can be ready for short gospel conversations at any point in time. Because if we look back at the day of Pentecost, what did the Holy Spirit do for the apostles? The Holy Spirit made a hospitable moment happen and then provided the tools for the conversation. Could the Holy Spirit do the same thing with the conversations you want to have but aren't having currently? Could the Holy Spirit work among the Christianish people that you know in your life? Pray intentionally that we were ready, among other things, for those conversations. But we also want to pray expectantly. Not in a milk toast fashion. God, maybe if you could see your way to possibly, maybe at some point, putting forth this, you know, conversation. No. The Holy Spirit, if we understand the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the one who completes the work that God the Father initiated, the Son created and redeemed, and the Holy Spirit finishes the job. That's what the Holy Spirit is in the business of. By praying intentionally and expectantly, you are con- you are you're confirming that it is the Holy Spirit who brings people to faith, not me, because that takes a ton of pressure off. And you are praying, uh, and you are, you are claiming that the Holy Spirit is already at work. The Holy Spirit was at work before we walked into this place this morning. The Holy Spirit will be at work when we walk out of this place. The Holy Spirit is right now working on people that we know to make them receptive to the gospel when we're praying intentionally and expectantly, all we're doing is saying, I recognize that, I'm on the same page as you, God, and I'm ready to get in on the conversation you're already having. We're just looking for the opportunity at that point when we're praying intentionally and expectantly. Let's turn this around just as we end it here. The challenge comes to you and me first. The first challenging question I want to ask this morning is, none of this works if you haven't said yes to Jesus Christ. Um, And I just, I ask this as a blanket to everybody, everywhere, online, in the house. You'd be annoyed if your pastor didn't ask this regularly. Have you said yes to Jesus? We're going to put that to prayer. Have you said yes to Jesus? Answer that to yourself, though, first. Have you connected with God? And then second question to consider is, do you believe that the Holy Spirit is active and might actually work in your life, like the day of Pentecost, giving you the opportunity and the invitation to be able to have those conversations with others? Is the Holy Spirit working, and are you willing to commit that to prayer? Let's pray together, in fact, right now. Lord, for those of us who have never said yes to you, even though we might be Christian-ish, We have a lot of the parts and pieces together. Today, we decisively say yes. And even in some cases, God, when we've said yes to you, today we say yes again and say we recommit to living under your authority, under your word, to live obediently to your commands and to do your will. Lord, for those of us who are afraid to step into the conversations, we pray that that fear is taken away 
and that that fear is taken away, especially as we see moments this week where we can enter in, and even though there's butterflies when we, when we see the opportunity, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in us to be able to say yes to you by entering into conversations you have already begun. Help us be people who are intentionally and expectantly praying, not to build your local church, but to build your kingdom by seeing other people come to know you, by connecting the dots for people who are just so close, God. So close. But without making that connection, they still stand to not receive the inheritance that you have of faith and life in your son, Jesus Christ, and life in your kingdom. God, instead of glorifying ourselves, may we glorify you. Instead of allowing them to glorify themselves, may they glorify you because we were responsive to your Holy Spirit. Pray all this in the name of your Son, who has redeemed us. Amen.